This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Resistance to the social and moral change needed for meaningful climate action is nothing new. I grew up uh, a big part of my life in the South when the civil rights movement was gaining a lot of momentum. The climate denial is no more ferocious than the resistance to civil rights in the South, and yet it gave, it gave way. Former Vice President Al Gore is not the only one bringing the climate movement to the masses. As TV's science guy, Bill Nye has moved from getting kids psyched about science to challenging adults to get working on climate solutions. If we were talking about climate change the way we talk about the Apollo program, we're going to beat these other guys to the moon, we'd be getting her done. Al Gore and Bill Nye, up next on Climate One. I'm Devin Strolovich. In 2006, Al Gore brought his climate change slideshow to the American public in the Academy Award-winning documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Back then, Gore warned of an increasing planetary emergency if global warming continued unchecked, including rising sea levels, coastal flooding, and nations of climate refugees. In the 2017 follow-up, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power, Gore continues his tireless fight to spread awareness of the problem and shines a light on some possible solutions. In the first part of today's show, Al Gore joins host Greg Dalton to discuss the making of the film and the path forward. Joining them are the film's directors, Bonnie Cohen and John Schenk, who shadowed Gore from his Nashville home to the typhoon-devastated island of Tacloban in the Philippines to the Paris Climate Summit. Speaking truth to power with Al Gore on Climate One, here's Greg Dalton. Vice President Gore, I watched an inconvenient truth, and then I watched an inconvenient sequel, and it seems to me that in the first movie, you were speaking from your intellect, lots of facts, and in this one, you're speaking much more passionately from your heart. Mm. Is that true? Um, I, I, I don't know. Um, there's an old song written in Nashville by Chris Christopherson, sung famously by <laughs> Janis Joplin with the line, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, so maybe, <laughs> maybe that applies. But it's also uh, down to the uh, incredible skill that Bonnie and John have with the cinema verite style. You know, if they asked to follow you around with cameras for two years of your life, uh, talk to me uh, first. It, 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 uh, it, it, it actually was a wonderful experience, but when I saw their first rough cut, I was really and truly astonished at a lot of the things that were on film where I had actually forgotten that they were around because they were always uh, around. And uh, so I give the credit to them for, for, the, for uh, how great the movie is. I'm biased, but I think their talent is just really awesome. Really is in some ways. Rarely are sequels better than the first one. I think this is one of those examples. Uh, Bonnie Cohen. So, how did you get him to open up? How did you convince uh, him you could you could follow the vice president around for two years? And <laughs> well, I, I can't give away those secrets. I'd have to, you know, I don't know what I'd have to do to you. Um, uh, you know, it, it when we first went to meet Al in Nashville at his home in Nashville and. Um, he was incredibly gracious Southern gentleman that he is, and then uh, proceeded to show us the 10-hour version of his slideshow, which is, if you know the slideshow, I, it, it has kind of an accordion effect. It can expand and contract and expand further. <laughs> and if, if you give Al the opportunity, which we did because 
we needed to know everything. He, we got the full whack. So uh, it was, it was um, qu quite an experience. It was a life experience that we will never forget. And what we noted at the time of hearing the slideshow was that there's all this work that Al is doing every minute of every day that goes into the building of this slideshow. And we started to think together about what those moments were, the talking to the scientists, meeting with climate refugees, talking to politicians, you know, scouring for information with every minute of every day that, that he takes breath. So uh, we, we talked together about how exciting it could potentially be and dramatic to get behind the scenes for that work, to see firsthand what that work looked like. He, I think, Al, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Al understood very early on that those kinds of, authentic, the authenticity of those scenes would be undeniable. And that, you know, given where we are in the world where we unfortunately still are having to convince some people about the climate crisis and now go the next step to convince them about the sustainability revolution, um, that the authenticity of cinema verite was the way to go. So we kind of, first spoke with him on an intellectual level, and then, you know, John shot this beautiful movie in its entirety, and is responsible for being that fly on the wall with Al in those scenes, so, you know, he should certainly comment on this, but um, when things started to happen in a room, he's so engaged with whatever is going on that he, he did, in fact, forget what was happening, and we were able to really capture um, authentic moments, emotional moments, and, and one area where that really comes through, John Schenck, is in Paris, where it's two weeks before the climate summit. Uh, Vice President Gore is doing this 24-hour kind of uh, video, and then something happens. Tell, set the scene for us in Paris. Yeah, a couple of weeks before the, the Paris climate uh, conference that was to take place in, in December of 2015, Al went to Paris um, in late November with the Climate Reality Project with the idea that he was going to do a 24-hour broadcast, broadcast around the world to raise awareness specifically for how important Paris was in, in, the, envi in the environmental history. Um, and we were kind of gearing up to film for 24 hours straight. Al was <laughs> gearing up to stay up 24 hours and, and do broadcasts. Anyways, we were there. And that day happened to be the fateful day of the terrorist attacks in, that, that occurred in late November 2015. We were under the Eiffel Tower in the middle of the city, and we started hearing sirens and ambulances and police cars going by, of course wondering what the heck was going on. Everybody had their cell phones out. And you see in the film this, this drama unfold. Essentially, you as the viewer find out, as we found out that night, um, what occurred. And the interesting thing that happens is that, you know, people get very scared, of course. We really viewed it as kind of a, a key moment in the, in the plot of the film because Al, rightly so, identified this as an important moment where the media doesn't always connect the dots between current events that happen in the world. And of course, um, uh, you know, Al s steps up and gave a great, an incredibly emotional speech that night, kind of helping to comfort the French crew and telling the French that the Americans stood with them in, in that time of difficulty. But then kind of goes on to talk about the human condition and how in, in it's, it's in difficult times that people bind together. And it set a very kind of somber and serious but proactive tone going into the Paris climate negotiations, which happened two weeks later in Paris. Then uh, Vice President Gore, there was a change to the film. There were some changes when uh, President uh, Trump took office. 
Uh, Almost choked still, on a that. Little, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little hard to... Uh, <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> so tell us how that changed your thinking and how it changed the film and changed a lot more. Well, Bonnie and John and I had talked uh, numerous times uh, during <clears throat> 2016 about the fact that we really did not know for sure how the election was going to come out and whoever was elected, what that person would do on, on climate. Of course, there was a stark choice, but third, we didn't really know how those events would feel yeah. after they settled in. So they, uh, they wisely made the decision to, to, to wait in order to finish uh, uh, the film until we really knew what was gonna happen, what had happened, and how it was gonna feel. And actually, we knew that even after the festival premiere at, at Sundance, that there would have to be uh, changes uh, to the movie to incorporate the, the, uh, the, the new elements of the narrative uh, as they were unfolding. And a lot of that is, is really pulling out from the Paris Climate Accord. You issued a, a statement on that. That's part of the movie. How do you think the pullout from the Paris Climate Accord is going to affect that accord? Yeah, I was really worried when uh, Donald Trump made his statement. I had tried hard to uh, convince him in personal conversations, uh, starting in Trump Tower during the transition, continuing in the White House to stay in the Paris Agreement. I, I thought, I really did think there was a chance he would come to his senses, but I, I was wrong about that. But <laughs> when he did make his speech, I was uh, deeply concerned that other countries might have used it as an excuse to pull out of the Paris Agreement themselves. But I was immensely gratified when almost immediately afterward, the entire rest of the world redoubled their commitment to the Paris Agreement. Almost, yeah. Almost as if they were saying, well, we'll show you Donald Trump. Uh, and, uh, and, and then here in this country, so many uh, governors and mayors and business leaders uh, are, are moving in that direction. And all of these groups have stepped up to say, we're still in Paris. We're going to meet the U.S. commitments regardless uh, of what, what President Trump does or says or tweets. And we, we, uh, uh, and now the, the best estimates uh, give rise to a legitimate uh, uh, hope that the U.S. is likely to meet the commitments made by former President Obama in the Paris uh, Agreement, uh, regardless of, of uh, Donald Trump. Now, the Paris Agreement, um, even, with, even if all of its commitments by all 194 nations uh, are kept, is still not, not enough. We need to do more. But as the, and, and Bonnie and John document in the film how the cost of renewable energy, batteries, uh, electric vehicles, uh, efficiency improvements, all part of the broader sustainability revolution are coming down in cost so dramatically that uh, the world ha has the solutions now. And so I, I was uh, really heartened that the, the momentum generated around the world, not least by the Paris Agreement, uh, not least by the technology revolution, is uh, now going to continue moving forward. 
uh, and others are, are, are coming to the rescue. Oh, one other point. The first day that the U.S. can actually legally leave the Paris Agreement, not entirely by coincidence, is the day after the 2020 presidential election. Uh, and so, and, the, and if there's a new president, um, the, the, uh, a new president can simply give 30 days notice and rejoin the, the Paris Agreement. So um, we're going we're gonna to win this. The remaining question is whether we'll win it in time. Uh, regrettably, a lot of damage ha has been done. We still have the opportunity to avoid the catastrophic results for human civilization, but w we have to build on this momentum and increase it. Former Vice President Al Gore, along with Bonnie Cohen and John Shank, directors of the 2017 film, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg Dalton continues the conversation with the filmmakers and their star. We spent a lot of time on the Gore family farm in Carthage, Tennessee, which is just an unbelievably beautiful part of the world, but uh, we feel a tremendous loss not having been able to put more of that work into the film. That's up next, when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking to former Vice President Al Gore, along with Bonnie Cohen and John Shank, directors of the 2017 film An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Some people who are not often part of this climate conversation are people in the, the right, people in the Tea Party, and there's a co-founder of the Tea Party movement named Debbie Dooley, who you know, uh, and she loathes Hillary Clinton, she loves Donald Trump, she doesn't think Russia uh, collusion is, is a big deal. Let's hear what she has to say, some surprising things she has to say about clean energy and fossil fuels. 75% of Trump supporters like renewables and they think we should do more to advance renewables. We need to look forward to innovation, to technology, to clean energy, and job creation. Koch brothers funded groups, they're horrible. I don't like, you know, I'm not fond of Koch brothers or their groups in any way because I've had experience with them actually lying outright lying and distorting the facts. And some of the very same people that are these groups like Heartland and Competitive Enterprise Institute that are saying man is not damaging the environment and renewables are bad. In the 1990s, these same groups were taking money from big tobacco to convince Americans secondhand smoke posed no health risk. If they lied to us once, why should we believe anything they say? <laughs> All right. All right, uh, Debbie. That's Debbie Dooley, Debbie co-founder of the Tea Party movement. Uh, Vice President Gore, your response to reaching people, not a, <laughs> that's an unusual Tea Party person, but reaching people who uh, disagree with Democrats on a lot of things, but she agrees on clean energy. Yeah, one of the things that's happening is people who aren't comfortable using the phrase global warming or climate crisis are, first of all, noticing that the weather is uh, very weird now. Uh, the floods and the droughts and sea level rise in coastal communities and Zika and, and so forth uh, are, are really waking people up, even if they don't want to get into a scientific dialogue about 
climate. Uh, and, and secondly, they, as Debbie Dooley just said, they are seeing the opportunities to, to save money and free themselves from uh, the abuses they've sometimes felt at the hands of utility monopolies. And as the cost continues to come down further, they want to save money, they want energy independence and energy freedom. And uh, Bonnie and John had the terrific idea uh, when we were filming the movie of going to Georgetown, Texas, and there's a scene in the movie where um, Mayor Dale Ross of Georgetown, Texas, uh, he describes it as the reddest city in the reddest county in Texas, which is pretty red. Um, and um, he's a conservative Republican, Trump supporter, but he's also a CPA. And he did the numbers for how he could save his citizens money there in the heart of oil country. They have just completed a transition to 100% renewable energy, and they're saving money. And as they save the money, all of a sudden, he feels liberated to say, and you know, the air is cleaner. And isn't it better not to, to threaten the future of the world for the next generation? So coming at it through the economic uh, pathway is, is, is really happening in this country and all around the world. Uh, Bonnie Cohen, tell us about some of the scenes that didn't make it into the film that you wish you could have fit in, but it didn't fit. We spent a lot of time on the Gore family farm in Carthage, Tennessee, which is just an unbelievably beautiful part of the world. But uh, there's some very interesting work that, that Al is doing there, converting uh, his parents' tobacco farm into a sustainable, organic, um, working farm. It's, it, it's done, I mean, it's underway, it's working. They're putting vegetables out to um, communities uh, already. Supported agriculture. And supported agriculture, right. Um, we, we spent a lot of time there and actually feel a, a tremendous loss not having been able to put more of, of that work into the film, uh, I would say. Um, also, there is, you know, there is, you, you visit Al visits uh, refu climate refugees in Tacloban in the Philippines, which it was hit by uh, Superstorm Haiyan. It was one of the worst uh, storms to ever hit landfall, and the destruction was um, unbelievable. And you know, we went around, and, and Al met a lot of. There's a scene in the film where he meets uh, with some climate refugees, but he actually goes out into the um, villages and, and meets with a mother whose home was filled up to the top with water, which had never happened in the 40 years that she had her family had lived in this house. And it's a very kind of beautiful scene. And um, there's, you know, you have to leave a lot of these kinds of things on the editing room floor, unfortunately. But um, we had, we probably shot 150 hours of footage over the course of the making of the film. That's a lot. We have a question from Facebook. Samuel John asks uh, for Vice President Gore, do you see the climate problem as more of an issue of excess consumption or not enough green tech? Does the film touch on global consumption? Yes, uh, and it's commonplace uh, these days to get a question about the <clears throat> linkage between uh, the growth of consumption and, and the climate crisis. And uh, that, is, that is certainly a legitimate issue, and a lot of people are addressing it in their own lives. Uh, the climate crisis, in my way of thinking about it, is the most serious manifestation of an underlying collision between the way our global civilization is presently organized 
and the surprisingly fragile nature of the ecological system. Uh, you could point to so many other examples. 50 billion tons of plastic since the 1950s. All of it's still around, a lot of it in, in the oceans. The destruction uh, of, the, of the forest. The, ex the sixth great extinction, the, which the biologists will tell you almost to a person, that's the most serious manifestation of this. So yes, uh, we cannot have unlimited growth of consumption in a finite world. But technology can contribute to the solution of that aspect of the crisis as well. We now have the uh, emergence of, uh, of an increasingly weightless economy uh, with more and more uh, so-called growth in, in the digital world and with the um, reduction in material use in the products. And you have great companies like Patagonia uh, promoting the recycling of goods and discouraging the consumption of new goods. And we have a long way to go on that for sure, but that's definitely a part of the crisis. And one part underneath that is population. A lot of environmentalists mm. don't like to talk about it. You talked about it way back, but that's driving a yeah. lot of the consumption, nine billion people. Yeah, absolutely, and it's on the way to probably more than 11 uh, billion before it stabilizes, potentially more. But here is uh, the, the good news. Um, the effort to stabilize population growth in the world is actually a success story unfolding in slow motion. Uh, and a lot of progress has been made. I led the US delegation to a conference in Cairo in 1994 where this uh, consensus was really solidified. Uh, it goes from one equilibrium, population growth goes from one equilibrium down an S-curve to another. The first has um, high birth rates and high death rates and large families. And the second equilibrium is low birth rates, low death rates, small families. Most of the wealthy countries have already made that transition. But all other countries in the world are on their way down that S-curve. Now, what causes this transition? Four things, and all these factors have to be present. The education of girls, the empowerment of, of women to participate in the choices in the family, the community, the nation. The availability of fertility management on a ubiquitous or nearly ubiquitous basis so that women and their partners can choose how many children to have and, and the spacing of those children and most importantly, continued declines in child mortality. A famous African leader said 70, 80 years ago, the most powerful contraceptive in the world is the confidence by parents that their children will survive. When all four of those conditions are present, it's almost magical. The, the growth rate comes down quite uh, quickly. Uh, the birth, death rates come down first, and uh, a generation later, uh, the, the birth rates come down. But now the U.S. has uh, reneged on its uh, promises to assist the world in making fertility management more available, and there's a whole history on, on that that we don't, won't go into. But if we can make sure all four of those conditions are present, we are going to stabilize population growth. Former Vice President Al Gore talking to Greg Dalton around the time of the release of an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power. This is Climate One. 2017 also saw the release of another documentary about a prominent climate communicator. 
You may know him best as host of the Emmy-winning children's show, Bill Nye the Science Guy. But since ending the program in 1999, Nye and his famous bow tie have taken on a new challenge, stopping the spread of anti-scientific thinking across the world. In his documentary, Bill Nye, Science Guy, director Jason Sussberg shadows Nye as he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with outspoken climate deniers and travels the world to show the causes and effects of climate change. Let's listen as Greg Dalton asks Nye and Sussberg about making the documentary, the state of climate science, and how to save the planet. One of the most dramatic moments in the film, Bill Nye Science Guy, is when you go to Greenland and you go into this scary-looking tube cave tunnel down into the ice. So Bill Nye, tell us what you learned there and why it matters to people who will never go to Greenland. You're not going to Greenland? <laughs> uh, uh, what I learned that it's all real. So for years, I have used uh, the ice cores in my public talks. And by that, by used, I mean, I did visit the um, ice core lab in Golden, Colorado, next to Denver, where um, the, they, we keep the ice from all over the world, like where you went to visit and stuff. So, but in Greenland, we got to participate and carry pieces of ice around and label the plastic bags and stuff. So this very cool, I'm a mechanical engineer because I like this kind of thing. So it's very cool hollow drill bit and you pull up 0.70 centimeter pieces of ice and you can see the layers of snow just like tree rings. And as the snowflakes fall, they capture bubbles of air between the tines of the snowflakes and they get compressed and the air is trapped in the ice indefinitely. You pull it up and you can tell the ancient atmosphere. And I used to tell this story in my college talks and stuff, but then when you're actually there and actually get to see it and hold it, it's really cool. In fact, it's really cold. Freaking cold. So when people say, we're not sure what the climate was like. The, yes, we are, <laughs> is the response. Excuse <clears throat> Yes, we are. <laughs> There's something of an anti-science movement in this country, and you, you talk really? about that in the, in the film. Let's, let's hear a clip of Bill Nye's science guy talking about this anti-science movement in the United States. CO2 is rising. Bill Nye is just going around saying CO2 is up, therefore global warming is dangerous, we should be concerned. It's not. It's not dangerous. The world is getting warmer. It's continually getting warmer. If I'm right, the reversals will lead to a degree to a degree and a half cooling. If you're right, they're not. But what are we worried about right now? Okay. What we have, to we have this increasing anti-science movement in the United States. Our president is worried about global warming. What a ridiculous situation. Quotes of Fox News and other commentators, uh, then-candidate Donald Trump uh, from Bill Nye, the science guy, the documentary. Bill Nye, why has that movement, that effort, been so effective in this country? Well, my understanding is the fossil fuel industry has been very successful at introducing the idea that plus or minus 2% is somehow the same as plus or minus 100%. That scientific uncertainty is the same as doubt about the whole thing. And that's not accurate, but it is, I think, writ large, the fossil fuel industry. So Jason Sussberg, there's re some really interesting characters in this film. Tell us about Joe Bastardi, who is just straight from central casting. <laughs> yeah, Joe is a trained meteorologist. He has his degree from Penn State University. It's the same university that Dr. Michael Mann teaches at. Um, and he is uh, you know, a serious uh, meteorologist. He works for an organization called Weather Bell. 
Um, he's actually a very good long-range forecaster. He's serious at what he, what he does. However, and Bill can attest to this, he just doesn't see the link between CO2 and our rising climate. So it's a little mysterious. I don't know what his motivations are. We met him, but it's still unclear why he comes to the conclusions that he comes to. So Bill, you spent some time with him. You go to his home. You hope you have a glass of wine. You hope that you might be able to bring him around. Did you make any progress? Yes, so maybe. Uh, here's what I say. If, for, if you meet people, you know, I'm a long-time skeptic. You know, I belong to both skeptic organizations. And uh, uh, when someone is first exposed to the idea that astrology may not be true, that there really aren't ghosts, that nobody has psychic powers that enables them to predict with whom you will fall in love or so on, uh, it takes somebody about two years to come around to that. You're like the first time you're exposed to the idea that astrology was made up 2,000 years ago was just sort of shot in the dark, and the, sun, the, the, the um, uh, constellations have shifted, the sun rises in a different place now than it did 2,000 years ago. It takes somebody a couple <laughs> years to uh, change their mind. So this, I look at this as chipping away. But part of the, what's the word? Odd nature of the Bastardi family is they invited us, I thought it was to dinner at 6.30 p.m., 18.30 hours, but there was no food. There were no, no Dorito chips. There was nothing. <laughs> I'm not joking you. It was, He's trying to throw was, you off, his, yeah, off your game. They were it, just going to keep you kind of uh, you know, hungry and feed yeah, you Yeah, so it was weird. It was a weird, the whole interaction was weird, but I think he equates the idea that 0.03% carbon dioxide now, 0.0403% carbon dioxide, uh, 403, that's the same number as 403 parts per million, that because that fraction is small, then its effect must be small. So he somehow went to meteorology school at a venerable university and didn't understand or it didn't become clear to him the greenhouse effect, greenhouse gases. You know, without this tiny fraction of carbon dioxide, there'd be no green plants, there'd be no us. I mean, for crying out loud, Joe. Jason Sussberg, one of the interesting points in the film, I thought, is when um, you actually got uh, Bill Nye to sit down and, and talk with uh, Heather Berlin, who's a neuroscientist. He kind of got him on the couch with a shrink, and he talks about some, some of the personal things. Tell me about setting that scene up, and was it hard to get him to do it? <laughs> <laughs> well, so Bill jokingly put his finger to his head like a gun. However, that was Bill's idea, was to introduce us to Heather Berlin, um, because Heather was doing a, uh, a re research that she stopped and now has since started again. Again, um, uh, that's uh, called your your brain on fame, and the idea is that celebrity has an effect on your your neurology, and so she sit Bill through a, a battery of tests, personality including tests. IQ tests, yeah, which we didn't show. But Bill was a very good sport in letting us, you know, take him through those battery of tests and also sitting through that um, sort of therapy. But it was a, it was sort of a narrative trick to have a real neuroscientist sit across from Bill and sort of interrogate him about his, uh, his, uh, his ideas. And Bill Nye, the upshot was that you always had this drive to be famous, and yet there's parts of being famous that you don't really like. Yeah, so everybody, the filmmakers got my good friend Steve Wilson <laughs> rambling, and he said, Bill's always wanted to be famous. Sort of, what I've always wanted to be is influential. 
Okay, so the fame part I didn't really have worked out, I admit. Uh, but uh, it does affect you. So Dr. Berlin, Heather, um, is a, a neuroscientist, and one of the recent, relatively recent findings in neuroscience is your brain can change in a way that's ch it's changed enough you can see it on an MRI, a magnetic resonance image. And uh, like it's been shown that talk therapy, sitting and chatting it up with a psychiatrist or whatever it would be, can change your brain over the course of a year or two. So I think that's part of her interest. You know, they love their MRIs because uh, it's only in recent times that you could, you know, Sigmund Freud didn't have access to magnetic resonance images. So I think that's part of what's in the background. And uh, it was, she did get me talking. It does, uh, that's the one part of the movie I just want to kill myself. You're listening to a Climate One conversation with science guy Bill Nye. Coming up, Greg Dalton hears more about Nye's crusade against climate change denial and his role in Jason Sussberg's 2017 documentary, Bill Nye, Science Guy. Bill was absolutely instrumental in getting a lot of millennials to take science seriously. And we are going to be, as Bill says, captains of industry one day. We are going to be elected leaders. And when that does happen, I think it's trending in the right direction. So I'm hopeful. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking to renowned science advocate Bill Nye and Jason Susper, director of the 2017 documentary about him, Bill Nye, Science Guy. Here's Greg. One of the th points made in the film is changing the narrative. And as you know, the tobacco companies in the 50s said, we're not sure. They doubted science, famously said, doubt is our product. That was then picked up by the oil companies. And lately, it's kind of the NFL saying, we're not so sure. What do you see as the thread between those narratives about in, in the importance of changing that denial narrative? Well, the word thread is good because the fossil fuel industry hired the same guys from the cigarette days, the very same people. Uh, and I mean, the NFL, you're talking about concussions? Concussions. That people yeah. say, we're not sure that, that what causes oh, yeah. CTE. And, and there's lots of people out there still playing football when the science is emerging that that's pretty dangerous. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> but I just feel the scale of climate change and the scale of cigarettes is way bigger than uh, head trauma. Uh, anyway, the, the threat is that, that denial or doubt is their friend. So... I think what's going to happen as people come of age and climate deniers are almost universally older, that is to say, baby boomers and up. And when those guys and gals age out, can I use that term? <laughs> uh, then scientifically literate people will emerge and get to work on climate change very quickly. I mean, really fast. I think the pendulum will swing back really fast. I think um, when you have somebody saying there are more people at this inauguration than there were at the other one, no, there weren't. <laughs> like, that's not going to be sustainable as a modern word. That, won't, that just won't last. But the question that I think about continually every hour of every day is, how, is it going to happen in time? Where will the curves cross? Will the deniers get aged out fast enough for the climate change embracers, let's do something about hers, to emerge? 
And that's why you have Climate One. Here we are. Way to go. Let's talk about solutions. Uh, there's a lot of debate. People think it's so big. What can I do that matters? Individual action. Does individual action matter? Or is it like writing a check to the federal government to pay down the national debt? That would work. My claim is if everybody were talking about climate change, if we were talking about climate change the way we talk about what happened in Charlottesville or what happened in Texas, people would be doing something about it. If we were talking about it just every day, yes, recycle your water bottle, don't squander water bottles, don't squander water, don't leave the lights on, don't take unnecessary car trips that you don't need to take. Yes, 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 put in double pane, triple pane windows. Yes, yes, yes. But if we were talking about it the way we talk about these other issues, we'd be getting her done. And the evidence for this I present to you comes from my parents, and they're mentioned in the film. During World War II, everybody was talking about World War II. That's all they were talking about. The music, the food, everything was about winning the war. And so if we had that same idea about climate change, or, or from my own lifetime, the Apollo program, we're gonna beat these other guys to the moon, and that will somehow uh, achieve something. And it did, and the former Soviet Union went out of business, most of it. <laughs> Some of it's still going. Uh, we would be getting her done. But that greatest generation believed in that collective sacrifice in a way that Jason Sussberg, the millennial generation that you're part of, that grew up on Bill Nye, one of the critiques of that generation is that they uh, want all their convenience, they want the food delivered to them, they don't do sacrifice, uh, they think that clicking on an icon on Facebook, that that's activism. So tackle that in terms of his... Okay, I'm going to be the voice of my generation. Is there that you are, asking? yes. I mean... Everybody. <laughs> I mean... I, I just find that to be, well, first off, give us a second here. We're just emerging. This generation of millennials, we are, what, 20 to 35. There needs to be some time to see what, what happens with the millennial generation. I just find that to be old man shaking fist at sky and hand wringing. <laughs> if you want to talk, baby boomers have caused all the problems. So, I mean, yeah, I think that our generation and Bill was absolutely instrumental in getting a lot of millennials to take science seriously. We are going to be, as Bill says, captains of industry one day. We are going to be elected leaders. And when that does happen, I think it's tending in, or trending in the right direction. So I'm hopeful. Bill Nye, if someone's young, millennial or below, wants to get into a climate change career, what kind of, you obviously speak to basic science more than applied science, thanks to the guidance you got from Carl Sagan. What kind of career paths would you say people ought to look to to kind of really have an impact in their, in their job, not just you know, the, as a consumer? Well, so keep in mind that I'm an engineer. I mean, I went to engineering school right on. I mean, I love, I love pure science as much as the next guy, maybe more but I became an engineer because I like bicycles and airplanes. They're fun. Uh, uh, but there's three things we want for everybody in the world. We want clean water, renewably produced, reliable electricity, and access to the internet, or whatever the internet comes to be called in the coming decades. With those three things, uh, we could, I believe, provide a high quality of life for everyone on Earth. In order to provide clean water, we're going to need new technologies or uh, better technologies for, let's say, desalinating seawater, let's say capturing, or the modern word is harvesting rainwater. But for that, we're going to need venture capitalists, we're going to need attorneys to protect intellectual property, we're going to need people to deliver the food to the people working on these things. We're going to need everybody working together. Uh, but in the 
the beginning of all that is going to be technology, which comes from uh, innovation, which comes from science. So let's go. It's going to be exciting. It's so one of my favorite stories from my own life, because really interesting, I was there. <laughs> but I was a consultant to General Motors at one point. You know, I, I do college talks. I do talks for companies, corporations, whatever. And instead of money... I negotiated for the use of the EV1, the Electric Vehicle 1, which General Motors called this car. They didn't call it the Ventura or the Impala or the Bel Air. They called it the Impact. That's a car. That's not what you want in a car. <laughs> so these same bunch of guys were in this meeting. They were almost all men. There were two women, almost all men. And, you know, what we want, Bill, we want our light trucks to be 50% recyclable. No, no, you want them to be 100% recyclable. For I sure hope I get a C in this class. <laughs> so this attitude uh, uh, that we can't do it, I have no time for that. I have no time for that. If you think you can't do it, you sure as hell won't. So let's get to 99%. Would that be all right? But the big idea, if you're out there, people, I see some very young people. Here's what we want you to do. Uh, New fuels for jet planes, for airplanes. Some new fuel. Probably won't be algae-based oil. Probably won't be. Maybe. It probably could very well be hydrogen. So I want you to solve that problem. And then whoever else is out here, are there any plumbers here? <laughs> you guys, I have a solar hot water system on my house. The heat is free. This is not rocket surgery, you guys. It's plumbing in a box, and it gets hot, and then you need less heat to make it hotter. Can we just do that? Let's go. Let's get her done out there. Let's talk about food and the importance of food. Uh, people uh, think that a lot of climate is really abstract. How important is agriculture and food and making the kind of changes that we want to make? for? There's no connection at all. What do you want? Of course, it's like huge. But explain your, your, your conversion. We've, there's a podcast on that. Oh, on that so my, my claim, my belief is, was that you can't know the ecosystem, that you would accidentally do something to crops that would create a superbug, you'd create some virus that you couldn't anticipate and stuff. But after I did two things, I went to Monsanto itself. Oh, we went to Monsanto, oh my God. Yeah, in St. Louis. Uh, I decided they really could tell. They really can tell what genes are going to do, and they really are diligent about uh, monitoring the crops and keeping so-called sterile refuges. They're really into it. Uh, they're very, very careful about it. But Monsanto has a terrible reputation, I think, for two reasons. First of all, they used to make Agent Orange, which I don't know if you guys are of an age, the Vietnam War, this default... Uh, they would denude Vietnam in the hopes of making battles more successful, but it had this horrible knock-on effect of giving these people this horrible disease. I guess it was cancer-related thing. And then uh, they, why didn't the, not just Monsanto, but Pioneer, DuPont, those uh, Syngenta, why didn't all those guys come out? Proudly GMO, check us out, our corn is even better. You know, why didn't they do that? I don't know, they're not that great at public relations. Uh, they weren't. Then uh, the other thing I'd say, you guys, the climate is changing. Crops are going to move north to in, from North America. They're going to move into Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, maybe. 
and we're going to be ready for that. The problem is the speed. It's the speed that these things are happening. And so with modern genetics, they, are, they agricultural scientists, agricultural geneticists, are able to anticipate uh, changes and make crops that are more drought resistant or more flood resistant or literally more wind resistant, which is amazing. And so um, there's something to it. And then on the Bill Nye Saves the World show, we had the mythic guy from Monsanto, Rob Fraley. We had a farmer, a woman from Iowa who says she's ninth generation farmer and a guy from the Department of Agriculture. And everybody agreed that uh, genetically modified food has a place. It does not solve all your problems, but it has a place. I think some of the critics of uh, GMOs are uh, more concerned about industrial monoculture, the so, massive use of glyphosate. It's what it enables. It's not just the GMOs themselves. It's, it's the other things. That well, so you guys, as far as herbicides, if you like herbicides, who doesn't? <laughs> glyphosate is actually pretty benign compared to some of this stuff. You know, Even though the it, state of California has listed it as a carcinogen. Well, it may be. And the, I, my understanding is it may be. Uh, I'm not an expert on that. But compared to a lot of other stuff, it's not as bad as other things. And another big idea, you guys, okay, whatever, don't shoot the messenger. But something to keep in mind is farming is not natural. You know, if you stop farming, nature goes back to... Uh, forests or prairies or whatever it was. And that's sort of a big idea that I think people lose sight of. If I, without humans just going crazy, you would not have a farm. You could certainly not have 7.4 billion people eating around the world. Uh, but the other thing I did, I went to the Monarch Venture. So this is kind of a hippie titled thing. It was held in Minneapolis. So they got people, the corporate pigs, Rob Fraley and people from DuPont from uh, Pioneer Seeds and the people that monitor the flight of monarch butterflies. And they got them all together. And the farmers and the cowboys should be friends. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, they got them all together and they decided that if they had milkweed, which I like to call milk flour, it may look like a weed to you and me, but to a monarch butterfly, it's their sustenance. It's what they got to have. If they had these patches of milkweed along the flyways, which is a cool word, where the monarchs make their highway in the sky, then they could sustain large populations of monarchs without screwing up farms very much. Because farmers don't like milkweed. It takes over everything. And it's worked. Uh, the last three years, the monarch population has gotten bigger. But three years is not much of a sample size. So stay tuned. Is it because of El Nino, and rainfall, or is it because of the refuges? But here's what I'm saying is everybody acknowledges there was a problem with the monarch populations going down. And everybody, both the hippies and the corporate pigs, wanted to do something about it. So that was really moving for me. I, that was, I was really impressed with that. I, I paid my own way, you guys. Speaking of severe weather, I'd like to get you a couple of explainers because you're known as the great explainer. Starting with the fires, what is the climate connection with, with the fires in America? Oh, so it was big rainfall in the spring. Then it got really dry and, and super hot in the summer. So when things started burning, there was a lot of fuel. And man, how many people were not affected by the fires? Yeah, everybody was affected no by the fires. Everybody either was 
had their lives destroyed or uh, that you know somebody who had his life or her life destroyed. Uh, and Hurricane Harvey, Irma, Maria. Nothing what? to worry about. Everything's fine. <laughs> so there's everything all at once. There's, uh, you know, it's never, as we say in airplane crashes, it's never any one thing. So Houston has all this hardscape, uh, huge, fast, fastest growing large city in the U.S., maybe in the Western Hemisphere or some crazy statistic like that. And so there's all this uh, asphalt, so-called sealed roads, uh, waterproof roads. And when it rained and stayed there, the problem just got worse and worse and worse. So my understanding is after Hurricane Katrina, people's houses were flooded and ruined and they lost everything. And if someone had gone to those people, they interviewed people and said, okay, here's half the value of your house and everything you own. Would you abandon your house? Everybody said, yeah. But after it drains and there is no relief and you can't sell it, nobody wants to buy your soaked up house, you just stay. So then the problem happens again. And I wonder all the time, is there going to be a future? People just start leaving Houston, Corpus Christi, Pensacola, uh, Miami, Miami Beach. Those are two different cities. Just start leaving and then is somebody going to go to New Orleans? Is somebody going to go in there and try to salvage all the copper plumbing and wire? I mean, is there going to be a salvage business we haven't even thought of yet? Wow. So the, it's the speed that's the problem. That's really dark. How do you stay motivated Try to, to like... <laughs> oh, because... Oh, man. So do you, who is from Iowa? Anyone from Iowa? No hands. Uh, Iowa gets 25% of its electricity from the wind competing head-to-head -head with uh, oil and gas. Uh, a friend of mine lives in uh, Coweta, Oklahoma, a um, suburb of Tulsa. They have earthquakes. They don't like earthquakes. It's from fracking. It's just like, nobody thought you could frack to the extent that you'd have earthquakes, like magnitude five, like real things. And nobody wants that. And then Texas, get, in the springtime, gets 10% of its electricity from the wind. Now, I'm not saying the wind is the whole answer, but it just shows you what's possible. Oh, the other thing, young people, transmission lines, better uh, electric power lines. I mean, what we have doesn't suck, but we can do way better, I'm sure of it. So the jet fuel, transmission lines, solar hot water. Come on, man, let's go. This will be cool. Let's make changes. Greg Dalton has been talking to science cheerleader Bill Nye, subject of the 2017 documentary Bill Nye, Science Guy, about the state of climate science and how to save the planet. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.